study titled This Is Us, and this is our uh, study of the church, ecclesiology, uh, of what God has set forth in His Word, how God used His people to accomplish His task here on earth and accomplish those things. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about who the church is. We've talked about the purpose of the church. We Last week we talked about what it means to be saved as, as for a believer, what that means for me, how that looks for as a Christian uh, to step into that saving faith of Jesus Christ that He's laid out before us. Um, and this morning... Uh, we're going to talk about baptism, you know, and there's a lot of different ways, you know, last year, um, last year we had when we did our uh, everything you should know as a Christian study, we, uh, we kind of talked about baptism. So this morning, well, the way I want to approach this is a little bit different than, you know, the different methods of baptism or why we do baptism the way we do it or certain things like that. Uh, but I want to see for us specifically, uh, even more so just communicating it from this passage of text in Matthew chapter 3 of uh, how baptism connects us to Christ and why it's significant for us. Why it's significant for me as a Christian, uh, not only in Jesus' baptism here in Matthew 3, but in my personal baptism as I participate in that ordinance that God's laid before us, um, what that means for me, you know, and what that looks like significant for me in my life and for us as the church universal. And, uh, you know, um, Baptism is a very significant thing, and it should be something we hold to high regard. Uh, and I think if, if you have kids, and then, you know, kids are they're infatuated with the idea of baptism. Uh, I know every time somebody would get baptized at church, my kids, one of my kids would be like, I want to do that. I want to, you know, I think they just liked the idea of being dunked in the water and being wet. Um, I remember one time whenever my kids were younger and they were, that we were bathing on, they were together, and I had walked out, and as I was coming back in, um, my oldest had my youngest dunked under the water, and at first I thought, well, he's drowning, and this is it. This is, this is when uh, I beat one of them to death. But um, what, what he said, he pulled him out, and he said, well, Dad, I'm, just, I'm baptizing him. I'm, I'm baptizing him right here. And so, you know, they're, like, infatuated with this idea of, like, dunking in the water and what it is. And so for us, you know, we, we have to understand that baptism itself is a very important, uh, probably the most vital, important ordinance that God has invited us into. And we see that because not only do we see it here in Matthew 3 where it's at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, but at the end of his uh, ministry when he begins to commission out the people of God to do the work leading into where we see the acts, the, the actual actions of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, he gives them this commission in Matthew 28, 19. He says, Go therefore, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is at the very central of the evangelical work of the church of Jesus Christ, of the church. Um, so it is a very important aspect, the most vital, I think, important aspect of that it's connected with what we talked about last week, that salvation and baptism are very connected, that faith in Christ and baptism are connected and very vital to our walk as believers. And so this morning, I hope that we can see that it is central to the mission of the church and what God has for us. And so uh, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read through uh, Matthew chapter 3, and we're basically reading the whole chapter down to verse 17, and then we're going to kind of break down a little bit and see what God has for us, specifically as we see Jesus' um, work in baptism here and what that means for us specifically. So picking up in verse three of Ma uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
make its path straight. Verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these rocks to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in the hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan of, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he con consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray real quick. Father God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your text. God, I just pray that you would just speak to us the significance of this ordinance and what it means to us to participate in your work here on earth and our baptism. And God, how this affects our Christian walk as we move forward. God, we love you and thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we have to understand about this particular text is whenever John is doing this baptism, baptism is not unique to this moment. Okay, the, the early Jews would participate in something, some sort of type of baptism. It wasn't necessarily called baptism, but a sort of baptism or a ritualistic washing where they would wash clean if they had come in contact with somebody with a disease, uh, if they'd eaten unclean food. Um, if uh, This was part of a, a cleansing that they would do long before this moment in the Old Testament they were doing these washings. And not only was it these washings, but it was also combined with circumcision and memorization of the Torah or the books of Moses uh, for conversion. When a Gentile, someone who is not born of the family of Abraham, uh, wanted to become a Jew, they had to first be circumcised, they had to be ritualistically washed in this sort of baptism, and they had to memorize portions of the Torah to be able to communicate. And so this was kind of the, the ritual or the, the work that they had to do to become a Jew. And so for them, uh, in this moment, when John is saying this to these people, he's saying it to very religious people. He's saying it to Jewish people who would have had experience with this kind of baptism, this ritual ritualistic washing that had been done before. And so what he's doing right now is kind of earth shattering for them because it's different than what they had known. Because what they had known is if you were being washed in the water, you being cleansed of your sin or you being kind of initiated into the Jewish religion. Not only that, but with circumcision and with memorization of scripture. And so these people being Jews already being a part of what they thought was the kind of the, the fold of God or the, the sheep of God, the family of God. John is telling them here that, that you have a repentance that needs to happen, that there is another baptism that needs to take place that you need to participate in. 
And so he's telling them this. He's calling them to something different. He's calling them, he's preaching not conversion, but he's preaching this repentance. He's calling them to this baptism that is meant to be repentive. And it would have been uncomfortable for them. It would have been different for them. And we, as we saw, there are Pharisees and Sadducees there. These are religious people. And, and so they all, everybody in this area that they're coming to this, they think that they have, they've already done what they need to do. They're already in under the family of Abraham. They're already in uh, the sect of God. They're already put together with that family. And, and just like we read in verse, uh, I love that in verse 9, uh, he says, the people say, they say, we, are, we have Abraham as our father. And then John says, for I tell you, God is able from these rocks, these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So he says it's not about who you've been born to or the family that you've been brought into. He's telling them it's something completely different. This baptism that you will be participating in is different. It's nothing like the family you've been born into or the good deeds that you've done. And so there's going to be three things this morning that I hope that we can use to kind of rally our mind into a certain space to understand what this what baptism in general and for us and the significance of it for us, what it means in this moment, what it means for us in our lives moving forward. And so the first thing this morning that we see is this uh, redirection in baptism. He says in verses two through four, I'll read those verses real quick to us together. He says, this is John's message. Repent for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he has said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And so what we see here is we, uh, we see John preaching this message of repentance. And I love how it says, you know, this, this is Isaiah, uh, that this verse comes from the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He's telling them that the people that are here right now, that the message you are hearing, you are a people in the wilderness. Okay, you are lost. You are lost. You are not in the place God intends for you. You are lost. And so he's saying that John is that one that the prophet Isaiah was speaking of, the one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. And we, like we learned last week, faith comes by hearing, by hearing of the word of God, by hearing the gospel. And so John is preaching this message of repentance. And what does repentance mean? And that is very important for us to understand that repentance means to turn or to return to. And so he's telling them that there's something you need to turn away from and there's someone you need to turn to. He's preparing this way. He's preaching this message of repentance. Okay, and that he's telling them it's not about the family you've been born into or the work that you've, been, that you've done, but he says that there is someone and something that you need to turn from and turn to. And so for us, we have to understand that this redirection is us turning. And so baptism is about that turning away from and turning to. And so there is, there's two points of repentance that we, have, that we as people can turn from. And the Bible is very clear and kind of lays out this situation best in Luke 15. If you, have your, if you want to, you can turn to Luke 15. If not, I'll kind of briefly give you the story. I think it's the most clear picture of repentance and even non-repentance that we see laid out in the Bible. In Luke 15, we are, it's a familiar story, the story of the prodigal son. And a lot of times we say that we, the title is the prodigal son, like we're only speaking of one son, and that's kind of where we get focused at. But there's really two sons that we see laid out in this story, and I believe that that these are two points of repentance that we find ourselves at as one son or the other. And so the first son we see, the one son, he left. 
He left his father's house. It says that he asked his father for all his inheritance, that he spent all his inheritance, all that his father had worked for, and that he was living recklessly, the Bible tells us, that he had spent everything he had, that he gave, he took all that his father had for him set aside, and that he spent it, and that he just, he just lived in this life of rebellion. He lived in this life of, of just defiance to his father. Okay, and so this is this one point that we, we would have to repent from. This place where we recognize, and as we see, the son does recognize. He comes to this place of just brokenness, and he says, he says uh, that I am no longer worthy. He comes back to his father. He says, I am no longer worthy. Treat me as one of your servants. And so we see this point of rebellion, but we see this really true picture of repentance right here, where he recognized his fallen brokenness and he recognized what he had done wrong and he turned from that, going back to his father and he says, I'm not worthy. I'm broken. I'm not, I, treat me as your servant. And But what do we know from that story? What did the father do for him? Because of this moment of repentance, because of this moment of turning, it says that the father celebrated him. The father fed him. The father clothed him. The father exalted him. The father put rings on his finger like the father loved him. And he got to experience this love because of his repentance, because he turned away from this rebellion that he was living in. And so not only is there this point of rebellion that we have to turn away from, that all of us in our life at one point or another, before our finding faith in Christ, we turn away from our rebellion, or we find ourselves in this point. And this is the point where these people, these Jewish Sadducees, Pharisees, and these other Jews in this Matthew 3 right here, where maybe they find themselves at, is the other son is that it says that he stayed at home, that he was doing good deeds, that he was trying his best to earn his father's love by his work. And he was angry. He was angry at the father for showing his love for the other son. And he said this, he said he was angry and refused to go in. He refused to go celebrate with the son who had come back. And it says that he and he says that he refused to go. And this is this was what he said. He said, many years I have served you and never have I disobeyed your commands. So listen, we're either living, needing to repent of a life of rebellion or we need to repent of a life of self-righteous religiousness. I don't even know if that's a word, but it best fits what I'm trying to say. This self-righteous religiousness where we've, we could say so boldly as the, the son says here that I've, done, I've been here. I've done everything you've asked me to do. But he still has this heart of bitterness and hardness because he's trying to earn the father's love. And so he's looking at the rebellious son and he says, that son left you. That son took everything you had and he spent it. But the father makes clear that he's come back and that he's repented. And that, that, that's, that's all I've asked for him to do. And the, rebel, the, the religious, self-righteous son misses that moment to experience what the father has in repentance. Because he's not repented. He's focused on himself. There's one doing everything wrong and one do, that did everything seemingly right. There's one who has, was devoured by rebellion and the other by pride. And so what we see is we see two points of repentance that we have to come from, whether it's rebellion or religiousness based in self-righteousness. This is where we repent from. And so it's this new direction. 
Not only understanding we need God, but understanding on our own that we can't be righteous. We can't get to God on our own. And that's what this baptism was about, this redirection. And we can really see it because John is inviting them to this, to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is a very specific, very intentional point, I believe, in the text, in this moment. Because if we remember back to the book of Joshua, what was the one thing that divided the Israelites, the the Jews, from Canaan, the promised land? It was the Jordan River. It was this very place that was the dividing line between the wilderness and the promised land. And so that's why in in verse 3 it says that he is the voice crying out in the wilderness because when we're living in a state where we have not repented, we are living in a wilderness. And so what John is inviting them to, he's inviting them to this redirection, this place. You know, the Jews, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then when they came to the Jordan River, this was the point at which was dividing them. And God provided a way, as we'll talk about at the end, God provided a way for them to cross over, a new direction, a new destination. The wilderness is not your home. And so repentance brings us to this point where we are moving from the wilderness of sin to the promised land of faith and obedience, whether it's in rebellion or religious self-righteousness. When we repent, Of either of those things, we move out of the wilderness of sin and into the promised land of faith and obedience. That there is a difference in our life. There is something different. He continues on in verse 8, and he really speaks of this. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says that our redirection includes some life-changing intentions. That I do not repent with the intentions to continue to sin purposely, but when I have repented, there will be intentions of change. There will be something different. That my life will bear change and that it will look different. And it's not just an external workspace, because like we've said before, Sadducees and Pharisees and some of these Jews, they were some of the best at keeping the external law, at keeping things looking pristine and pretty. Bible called them whitewashed tombs, that on the outside it was pearly white, on the inside was dead man's bones. And so he's calling them to bearing fruit that is an internal change that redirects their entire life. And so baptism, this moment, it comes with baptism and repentance are joined. There is, there is no way that true salvation, true baptism, true repentance happens without these things all interlocked. Last week we talked about salvation. This week as we talk about repentance and baptism, those things are linked together. They're not one or the other. They're together. Now, can you be baptized and not truly be repentant? Absolutely. But true baptism that the Bible tells us about is intertwined and connected with this repentance that is leading us somewhere else. Acts eleven eighteen 18 says, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Not empty repentance, not because I feel bad because of some of the things I've done, but a true anguish over my sin against the holy God and that I want him and that I need him and that I need his salvation, that I need his work in my life. Acts 3, 19 through 20 says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So lead us to a life. Lead us to life. Lead us to times of refreshing in the Lord when we can repent and acknowledge where we have gone wrong in our walk towards God or away from God. And so not only is there a redirection that comes with baptism, but there's an identification in baptism. There's an element of of, uh, carrying a unifying agent, a similarity that we see in this. And I love this in verse 13. It says, then Jesus came to be baptized. And so a lot of times we ask ourselves this question, like, 
Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Like the Bible says here in Matthew 3 that they came confessing sins and that it was this baptism of repentance. So they were acknowledging where they were wrong. They were turning away from their sin and they were turning towards God and they were turning towards this person that uh, John was speaking of that was mightier than he. And so pointing to Christ. And so for us, you know, we will look at that and we'd say, why would he need to be baptized? He had no sin. He was not having to confess of anything in particular. And I think for us, what we have to understand in two things, not only is Jesus' baptism, Him identifying with us, but it's also creating that space at which we identify with Him and that we rest in Him. We hear this language all throughout the Bible, in Christ or for Christ or with Christ. And so the first thing being Jesus is identifying himself first with us, that Jesus came, that they didn't seek Jesus out and say, Jesus, you come do this so that we can be identified with you. Jesus came to willingly identify himself with sinful man. And so that's what this baptism communicates first off is that Jesus is, initiate, is the initiator. God is the initiator in all things. We talked about last week, God is the initiator in our salvation. God is the initiator in our identification. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God doesn't wait on me to come to him. You know, I'm thankful that God initiates that work with us. First John 419 says we love because he first loved us. Jeremiah 1 5 says before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you or set you apart. I appointed you. God is the initiator. And in this moment, Jesus comes to this public place to publicly identify with publicly sinful and broken people. And for us as the church, we celebrate in that, that he has identified himself with us in our repentance, in our sinfulness. And so not only is it identifying him with us, but it's connecting us with him, identifying us with him. In verse 13, as the, as the voice of God speaks out in this moment, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What we see and what the Bible tells us that this baptismal moment communicates is that our identification is linked to the identity of Jesus. And what God says about Jesus, he is saying about us. For 2 Peter 1.17, it says, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Galatians 3.25-28, But now the faith that has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what we celebrate in that moment of baptism, not only Jesus' baptism, but in our own baptism, is the acknowledgement and the identification with Christ, in Christ, that what God says about Jesus Christ, He is speaking over His church today. That we are sons and daughters of God. That we are His people. That we are His chosen people. That we bear His promises. That we bear His goodness. That we bear those things on us. That when Christ came out of the water, what God said of Him becomes the proclamation over us. There is an identification in baptism. And that proclamation is made over us. That your baptism, and for each and every one of us, our baptisms are a marker to remind us where we moved from the jurisdiction of the devil 
to the affirmation of God. God says, you are mine, that nothing can separate you from my hand and nothing keeps you outside of my reach, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor man, nor female. He said, you're all one. That he invites us into this identification that we can celebrate in, that we can live in, this confidence that we can live in our life. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. It's because of this identification that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, of all the rotten things that we've thought or done in our life. He says we have redemption from those things and forgiveness from the weight of those things. 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Because what He wants us to do is He wants us to be confident in this identification so that we don't live under the weight of our sin. Because our heart, the Bible tells us our hearts are deceitfully wicked, and that our hearts will constantly try to pull us away from that identification and tell us that we're sinners, broken, messed up, that don't deserve God, and that God has no place for us. And he tells us here that that when our hearts condemn us, when our hearts tell us that you are not good enough for God's family, not good enough for his kingdom, not good enough for the proclamations he makes over Jesus Christ, his son, he says he is greater than our hearts. He is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. That he is speaking against that very message and he knows everything. Guys, he knows the things you fought this week. He knows the things you've done in your life, the terrible, awful, wicked things that we've thought or done. And if we're honest with ourselves, if you haven't done it, you've probably thought it. And the Bible tells us that is as much a sin as the action He says that he knows all those things, and yet he does not proclaim over us condemnation. That when you're in him, it says that he speaks that you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. So not only is there identification, redirection, but the last thing, church, that I hope that we can truly see from this moment of baptism is that there is a substitution in baptism. There is a substitution in baptism. He says in verse 8, he says he is doing this. He is doing this and fulfilling, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Verse 15, I'm sorry. Fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And it says in the next verse that then he was baptized. Listen, church, there is a bigger task at hand than this moment that we see. It's so much more than just Jesus getting dunked in the water, so much more than just him identifying with these sinful people. It's so much more than him even acknowledging and and encouraging John's work and, and giving affirmation to John's work in that moment. Jesus is pointing to something much bigger than this moment. You know, Jesus, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry right here. This is after this moment, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted. And then he begins all his miracles, begins his work. But Jesus' physical life would not only begin, you know, this work, his spiritual work would not only begin with this baptism, but his physical life would end with what the Bible calls a baptism, what Jesus calls a baptism. In John 12, in Luke verse 12 
uh, chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says this. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is looking forward to his crucifixion and his burial. Jesus is looking forward to the death that he would die for the very people that he is being baptized with in this moment. He is looking forward. And what's very interesting about this is John the Baptist, okay, John the Baptist is a descendant of the tribe of Levi. And if we remember our Old Testament uh, uh, people and who were, did certain things, the Levites were the people who were priests. And what did the priests do? We've read that the priests would go into the Holy of Holies. They would go before God and they would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people of Israel. And so John, being a descendant of the Levites, is holding Jesus Christ in the water, baptizing him, signifying the perfect lamb who would be slain for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. He is communicating a message, a method that would happen later on in Jesus' life. He is showing the work of the gospel in this very moment when he is taking Jesus, the perfect lamb, laying him down in the grave, raising him back from the dead. The full gospel is at view in this moment when we see Jesus being in the hands of a priest, a Levi priest, signifying this death. This baptism that he talks about in Luke 12, that I have to be baptized with a baptism of death and burial. Where the God the Father would have to turn his face from me because I would be bearing the sins of the world. This was a picture of Jesus substituting himself for us. And not only, and not only did he, he didn't just die for us. Church, we have to remember he died instead of us. That this very death that is signified here in his burial and his raising is the death that we were meant to die. That he substituted himself for us, bearing our shame, bearing our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted, accounted righteous. To make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So he says there, this is prophecy specifically about Jesus that Isaiah is saying here. He says that he will be acquainted, he will, make, he will make many accounted righteousness. He will give many righteousness by bearing their iniquities. You know, we said that word imputed righteousness that the New Testament says. He is giving us his righteousness because he is embarrassing our shame, our embarrassment, our iniquities, our sin. Therefore, he says, continuing on, therefore I will divide him a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with us, associated with us, identified with us. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, there is no more beautiful statement than the fact that our Savior Jesus Christ came, identified with transgressors, identified with sinners. And this word transgression means that you've committed a travesty against that individual specifically. And so this is the very one at which we've sinned against, 
coming and bearing the iniquities of the very ones that have sinned against him, the very ones who spat in his face, the very ones who turn their backs on him. He said that he makes intercession for them, that he makes a way for them, that he speaks and proclaims something different over them, that Jesus offers us freedom. Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all who, are, who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is offering us that, and baptism is that beautiful representation of his death, his death and his burial, and that his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And it's at his ascension, at him being placed at the right hand of the Father, that he makes intercession for us, that he speaks on our behalf in a way that we can't speak on our own. He offers us freedom. C.S. Lewis said, He died not for me, but for each man. And if each had been the only man made, he would have done no less. Church, we have got to see this on an individual basis. That Jesus Christ substituted himself not only for the church universal, but he substituted himself for me. He substituted himself for you. Like Lewis says there, if you would have been the only person in creation ever made, he would have done no less for you. Baptism is a picture of that. He died for us individually. And baptism is the celebration of his substitutionary work for us. And so to finish up this morning, I pray that we can see from Jesus' baptism two things under one banner of surrender. That Jesus came and he surrendered himself to the will of his Father. Surrendered his, his godly deity to his human brokenness. You know, as we see in the crucifixion, they're calling out, if, if he's the son of God, then he can take himself down from there. Jesus had every ability to take himself down from there, from the cross, to pull himself down. He didn't have to bear our sins. He didn't have to bear our hurt and our shame. He didn't have to die instead of us, but he chose to, to offer us a way. He submitted himself in surrender to his own to his own weakness of this flesh that he wore for us. And so what we see, two things under Jesus' surrender that we can learn from is, is, is we can see Jesus being a surrendering servant and a surrendering Savior. And for us as Christians, that we would understand that if baptism communicates anything, it communicates to us that the Christian life is about surrender. That it is about surrender. And, and it, it, this surrender defines us. This is us surrendering our rebellious fight. This is us surrendering our self-righteous religious attempts to earn our place. This is us surrendering in obedience. That we look different. That things have changed. That I've repented. That I've turned away from the wilderness. And I've crossed over into the promised land of obedience and faith. And that I'm living in something different. I'm living different. Because the reality is, it is unlikely that Christ is your Savior without your surrender. That if our life is not surrendered to something greater and bigger and different that looks different in our life, the way that we live our life, it is unlikely that we have a Savior, that we have put our faith in Him. It is unlikely that Christ is our Savior without our true surrender. And that's where salvation by faith, baptism, communion, our life looks different because we believe in a Savior who we have surrendered to, and it affects the way that we live. And that's why we participate. That's why we live in obedience, because of what he's done. And so for Jesus here in this baptismal moment, we see these three things. We see substitution, Jesus dying for our behalf, presenting himself as a lamb in the hands of a priest 
to offer us as a sacrifice for our sins, the forgiveness of our sin. We see his substitution. We see his resurrection. It says, as he comes immediately out of the water, the voice of God speaks over him. So we see his resurrection, his defeating of death that he's done for us. And the last thing being his divine recognition that God says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And that proclamation after our baptism, that proclamation comes over us. That this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my chosen one. This is my child. And so for us, when we are baptized, church, we are identified with and in Christ in his burial, in his death, in his resurrection, in his future ascension. That we are identified in that. And we don't experience it physically because Christ already experienced it physically. That Christ's spiritual, uh, Christ's physical baptism on the cross and in the grave is replicated in our spiritual baptism and resurrection in the water. It validates our status and His promises as God proclaims over Him. Not only proclaiming over Him in the sense of this is my child, the voice of God speaking out, but it also says the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and setting on Him. And so we know that not only is God speaking affirmation over His people, but the Holy Spirit has come and has sealed us. We see the whole work of the triune God happen in this very moment where Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are present in this very moment all together. And that we know as a Christian that God has made a way, that God has spoken affirmation and promises into our life. The Holy Spirit has come and has, has worked in us, has uh, seeks us, that He leads us, that He seals us, that He prepares us. And then Jesus Christ, the one who came seeking after us, the one who came to save us, substitute Himself for us. They're all present in this moment and they're all pointing to us, pointing away to us. And so for us, church, what I hope that we can understand from baptism, you know, in the Old Testament, water was always a picture of judgment. Water was a picture of judgment. And so whenever, in the book of Joshua, whenever they come to the Jordan River, you know, they're in the wilderness, they're looking towards the promised land. The instructions from God were that the priests would walk out into the water with the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God in, in, this, in, this play, in this artifact. The presence of God in this artifact. He said, you'll walk out on the water and you'll stay there. When you step out there, the waters will part. The Israelites will walk across dry land and you stay there until every single one has walked across. And so for us, church, what Jesus has done, the presence of God, is that He goes into the water of Jordan right here to make a way for us. And that God tells us that He will stay there until everyone who is going to come will come. That He's provided a way for safe travel. That in the waters, church, what we don't find anymore is judgment. What we don't find in the water is condemnation. What we find in the water is salvation and freedom. And that Jesus bore the weight of our judgment. Jesus bore the weight of our condemnation. And that he opens those waters for us to make it to the promised land. And that we can celebrate as Joshua and the people, the Jews would celebrate in Joshua 4. It says, for the Lord your God dried up the waters 
He dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, to, for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth, we know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. So they were remembering this crossing over. That Jesus had, God had made a way for them in the waters of condemnation and judgment. That he had made a way and that he would make that way until they made it to the promised land. Church, he does the same for us. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his spirit comes and seals us and we're baptized and we're raised up that we are no longer under the condemnation and judgment of our rebellion, our self-righteous religion, but that we are in Jesus Christ and that we rest in his work, his substitution, his resurrection, and the identification of who he is. So I pray for us this morning that we can celebrate as they did there. That if you haven't been baptized, I pray that we, we do that. Listen, whether that's in a pool, a baptistry, a trough in the middle of a courtyard, that we celebrate that moment. That, we, that that is like Joshua and them as they stacked stones to remember this moment when Jesus, the presence of God, went into the water to part the ways for us to walk across. That Jesus... That whenever I'm raised up out of the water, when I came out of the water where I was baptized, that I came out on the other side, not judged, not condemned, but in freedom, in the spirit of God, in the identity of Jesus Christ for the rest of my life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, living under the promises of God. So I pray for us this morning that not a single one of us would live under the condemnation and judgment of our sin. But if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ for His work, for His satisfaction, that you would do that this morning. And I pray that if you've never been baptized as a believer, we, we do something called believer's baptism after we've put our faith in Christ, that then we participate in this act of baptism to, to mark this, remember this moment of what Jesus had done for us here in even Mark 3, what He would do for us at the end of Matthew 3 and the end of Matthew, the end of the Gospels when He would die and be baptized into the grave. I pray you would participate in that if you've never done that publicly as a public declaration of your repentance, a public declaration of your salvation, that you would do that too. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I, uh, I thank you so much that Jesus was baptized in judgment and condemnation so that we could be baptized in celebration. God, I'm so thankful that our baptism doesn't have to be a baptism of death, but it's a baptism of life, baptism of, of joy, a baptism of freedom, a baptism of salvation, a baptism of your presence and your goodness. God, we so often, we so often don't give you the credit that you deserve. God, we so often lackadaisically approach your ordinances, whether it's baptism or communion or worship or gathering together in prayer, whatever it might be, God, we so often don't give it the credit it deserves and truly see it for the power it is. But God, I pray this morning that if there's one here that has not put their faith in you, I pray the Bible tells us that if we believe in our heart and confess that we would be saved, God, I pray that they would do that, God. And if they have not followed through in baptism, 
public repentance and acceptance of the work that you've done for us. God, I pray that they would want to and desire to move forward in that. With this faith family gathered here together as we celebrate your goodness and your word. Lord, I just, I thank you for your text. I thank you for this moment. God, and I just pray that you would just continue to challenge us as individuals that would not get comfortable or complacent. God, and whether we have a hundred here or whether we have ten here, God, that we boldly approach your throne with the same veracity that we would at any other time. God, because you're worthy of it. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name. Amen.